So we are going to take a break from the book of Genesis, and for our Thanksgiving service today, I'm going to share a psalm of Thanksgiving from Psalm 100, and uh, we have a special Bible reader for us this morning, scripture reader. This is my daughter, Jessica, so you've probably heard about her, <laughs> and uh, what's that? Yeah, one of three. They've heard that story several times. Yeah, the three Jessicas. This is, this is the first, this is the original, the biological, the, the, the first one, right? <laughs> All right, great. So, hey, good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Hi. What's yeah, we drove in uh, 11 hours from Columbus, Georgia, over <laughs> overnight, Friday night. So, we're super thankful to have made it safely and in, you know, good condition with the children. Anyway, um, yeah, so I'm going to read Psalm 100. Um, and it's a lot about Thanksgiving, which is obviously coming up. So I just wanted to quickly share something I'm thankful for. Um, obviously, safe travels was one. And then um, I've seen my dad work through, like, this church plant for however many years now? Nine. Uh, yeah, nine years. And I'm just, like, so excited to be here with y'all's new building. And, I mean, that's it's just really cool to see all that God's done um, in this church life and through him and everything for the past nine years now. So anyways, I'm really thankful to be here and read this psalm uh, with me as I read it aloud to us. Uh, all right, Psalm 100. Um, it says, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate that. All right. Let's pray. Father, your word is what we need this morning. We're not searching for a feeling or a certain type of emotional experience, although all that could be side benefits. Lord, we are searching to understand your word so that we could understand you. So, Father, please help us with that. Please teach us what we do not know. Make us into what we are not and give us what we do not have this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, most of you, whether you're old or not old, you know who Elvis Presley is. <laughs> and one of the things that he was famous for was after a song and people would applaud, he would say, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, that's my best Elvis imitation. But he was known for saying thank you, thank you very much. And I'm not recommending that all of us copy Elvis Presley in every part of his life. But being thankful is a good thing. And saying thank you is a good thing. There, there's lots of experiences where we don't, give thanks, we don't receive thanks, and it just makes life uncomfortable. There's so much to be thankful for, and not only in the country we live in, but knowing Christ above all things. Now, if you're new to Revolution, we talk about something called chiastic structure a lot, because I feel like it's one of the main keys in understanding any passage. And a chiastic structure is like a sandwich. You know, on the, you, get, you begin with bread and you end with bread, okay? And you have mayonnaise or mustard, depending on whether you're sanctified or not, you know, lots of mayonnaise on mine, as you know. And then, of course, we may have lettuce. And, of course, we work our way into the middle of the sandwich. And the key, the main thing of the sandwich is the meat. And so 
there's a chiastic structure in Scripture in a lot of passages. The whole Bible is a chiasm, but even in this psalm right here, there's a chiastic structure that we can look at. And so there, we broke it out there, and so it starts with all the earth and all generations, which is two ways of saying everybody on planet earth. And so this tells us the direction of the psalm. It's directed to everybody. And this will be fulfilled someday in the millennial kingdom when everybody comes into the gates of Jerusalem to worship the second coming Christ. And then it works its way in if to, the, to the mayonnaise and mustard, if you will. And it says, come in to his presence. And then the, the parallel thought is, enter his gates, enter his courts. It's all about coming to a location to experience God. And then it works away into the main point, the meat of the, of the psalm, is know the Lord. Know the Lord. And know that the Lord, that He is a list of these things. He is God. He is who made us. We are His. We are His people. And we are the sheep of His pasture. All those five thoughts help us to know God and know that He is those five things. That's the core of this psalm based on this structure. There's another way we could dissect this. We could dissect this based on verbs. Make a joyful noise. Uh, serve the Lord. There's another verb. And then come into his presence. Know is also a verb that, that's, and again, it's in the, in the key part. Enter. And then also give, give thanks to him. And then the last verb right there is bless. Bless his name. So we're going to break it down this morning by the verbs on this thing. So the first verb is make. Make a joyful noise. Some translations say, make a shout. I think that's probably the better translation here. Um, even though ESV is my overall mo best translation, I think in this, play, this verse, it kind of missed it. Because I think shout is much better. Because what people did was when a king came into their presence, when the king had a procession, they shouted, O king, live forever, you know, uh, God save the king. All those different things that people would shout to praise the king. And then people would shout to Jesus. I, I had a friend named Gary Basinger at the Mother Church. And one of the things I appreciated about him, you know, sometimes people make noise in church and you're like, would you stop that? You know? But then sometimes people make noise in your church and you're thankful for it. And Gary would just like in the middle of saying, thank you, Jesus, you know, right in the middle of songs. And he would just say, you're so good, Jesus. And he didn't do it in a pious, sanctimonious way. It just seemed so genuine. And if you knew Gary, you would, you would know that it was. And he would make a shout to the Lord. And so shouting is, is a good thing, but it's something that we express out loud. You say, well, Gary, I'm just not that kind of person. But you, you, we get excited for different things. We'll be talking about that here in just a moment. But it says, make a, a, a joyful noise to the Lord. And again, it could be a shout. Um, and I think that's the, the better translation on that, on that. You think about all the different times in the Bible that people shouted. Remember the walls of Jericho, right? How many times did they walk around? And what did they do on the seventh day? They shouted. And then there was one time that the, the Philistines were scared because they heard a shout coming from Jerusalem. And it was a shout to the Lord. The people were shouting to the Lord. And it intimidated them. And so there's a lot of things that are going on right there. Um, the, my my son-in-law is here, Taylor Redmond. And uh, he's a big uh, Atlanta Braves fan. Great, great class organization there that beat us in a World Series a couple of years ago. And their fans love to shout, right? They're famous for the, what's it called? The, the tomahawk chop, right? Kansas City Chiefs copied them and stole it from them, right? And you guys made it up first, I'm sure. And so, man, their, their fans get excited, right? They, they, they love to shout. 
And, the, and we, of course, we had a lot to shout about this year being Astros fans. And, and so whether it's the Atlanta Braves or the Houston Astros, or if it's your grandson playing in right field who will never see the baseball, you know, you're going to shout when they do something even close to something good, right? So we do shout. <laughs> we just don't always shout to the Lord, and maybe we should. You know, we, we talk about shouting. We talk about being excited. But it's saying to make a joyful noise because this is the source of the shout. It's not just shouting to be shouting. It's shouting because your life is overwhelmed with joy. You are full of joy. It is a joyful shout. It is something that comes because you've experienced salvation with the God of our creation. Because you know of all your past. You know of how much you've been forgiven of. You know that your life has so much more baggage than a hobby airport. You know that all that is behind you, and you have reason to jo be joyful. And that joyful overflows in a shout. And then it says, shout to the Lord. We're not just shouting about something. We are exclaiming and, and, and expressing our emotion to God directly. That's why I encourage you often here on Sunday morning is don't just sing about Jesus. Sing to Jesus. Uh, as you know, I, I can't sing very well at, at all. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure... If I had a great voice, I would love to be able to sing to Tammy and sing to her how much I love her. And we, if you have a, a husband that can sing and sings to you, you wives probably love that and think that's the most amazing thing. But it's interesting, the world is so full of love songs that are about everybody and anybody but God. But God's the one who created music to be the love song about him. And he desires for his bride the church, the body of Christ, to sing a love song to him. And he sings over us, according to Isaiah. So what's our church's purpose statement? We say, worship God passionately. And that's what a joyful shout is. It's passionate worship. And, and when we started this church, we, we, the last thing we wanted to do was create a dead service where we just stand up, sit down, you know, pray, kneel, whatever, just kind of go through the motions. Many of us have been in churches where you go through the motions. And we just didn't want to do that. We wanted to worship God passionately. Since we brought up our purpose statement, we'll go ahead and finish. Love people genuinely, right? And then the last part, start a revolution. So when we see that all this put together, it really, it starts with worshiping God passionately. Because get this, if you don't worship God passionately, you are not well equipped to love people genuinely. Because God is love, right? And if we put him first and foremost in our life, and he is this, we love him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and we adore him for who he is, then his love through the power of the Holy Spirit flows through us towards other people. And we live in a day where people don't love people genuinely. They love you as long as you give me what I want, and as long as this is a quid pro quo relationship, and you get this, I get that, then when all that stops, the love stops. But that's not the way God loves and aren't you thankful for that? God loves you at your worst. God loves you when times are super tough. You know, when others run away, God's still there with you. So the next verb here is serve the Lord. We saw make, and now we see serve. Serve the Lord with gladness. Think about what serving is. Serving is, is not just helping others, but it is specifically about helping someone else the way they want to be served. When you go to a waiter, when you go to a restaurant and you have a waiter, the waiter doesn't say, hey, um, I'm going to give you meatloaf. 
and I'm going to give you a, a steak, and I'm going to give you a salad, okay? Does he tell you what you're going to have? No, he's there to listen and to hear what you want. And that describes our relationship with God. What does Isaiah 40, 31 say? They that wait upon the Lord. Did you know that, that word wait there means like to wait tables? Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But it starts with people who wait like a waiter upon the Lord. And so one of the best things we can ever do is start every day say, Lord, what do you want? How would you like that cooked? <laughs> you know, and, and we're like, can I get you more of this? Can I do this? And think about how a waiter waits upon, how a good waiter, not, not some of these waiters today, but how a really good waiter waits upon you. And think about that attitude and that demeanor and approach God with that. Because think about that. That's how Jesus approached you. Jesus came washing feet. He said, the Son of Man didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give, and even the greatest gift of all, to give his life, what? A ransom for many. You talk about taking orders. Jesus fit the bill and did exactly what the Father commanded him to do, and he came here to serve us. That, that should be our role model, to serve the Lord and to serve him with what? With gladness. And now, we all, we've all had our bad Sunday Oh, I'm in the nursery today. Oh, my gosh, I really didn't want to be in the nursery today, you know. Oh, it's our weekend to clean the church. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe this, you know. I, had all kinds, I was going to go golfing this afternoon, Mark, right? You know, we were going to do something fun, and now we have to go up there and clean the church. And, you know, we all, including Gary, we all need an attitude check sometimes. But let me ask you this question. What would make you glad to serve the Lord? Gratitude, because of all Christ has done for us. You think if Christ could endure the beating upon his back, the crown upon his brow, the nails in his hands, if he could go through all of that through me, for me, I certainly can do my part in serving the body of Christ. And we do it with gladness because it is a privilege to serve. Don't ever let that escape your thought process. When you get to the point where you're serving God and it's drudgery, it's time to go back to the cross and see all the cross did for you, what Christ did on the cross for you, and then you will be grateful, and then that gratefulness will lead to gladness, and you'll be like, man, I can't wait to serve the Lord. And then it says, and come into his presence with singing. And again, the Lord is a romantic, romantic God. He loves to hear love songs about him, and he loves to sing over us, and he wants that to be a loving relationship. And this is coming from a guy, again, who can't sing, but there was a time in my life where I didn't sing. I, I remember, seriously, I was the pastor of a church, and the congregation would be singing, and I would be standing there, like, we're going to get this over with soon? <laughs> you know, let's get to the good part, you know, in my ego, you know? And I really didn't enjoy, I mean, the music was okay, but I'm like, I've sung these songs a hundred times, and, and it just, you know, I was probably more callous than I, I realized, and I, I, in hindsight, I see that, but you know, it wasn't until I was broken that I had something to sing about. And then when my life was broken and because of my sinfulness and the life things, things felt spiraled out of control, but then God redeemed me, brought me up out of a miry pit and put my feet on a solid rock. And then I'm like, man, how can I help but sing? And how could I help but not just praise God for all that he's done and with tears in my eyes? You know, you think about, but you say, Gary, I just really, I don't know if I like this thing. But let's say you go to a birthday party and it's your, your, your kid's birthday party or your grandkid's birthday party. 
and everybody says, okay, it's time to sing, the can- sing happy birthday and blow out the candles, and you stand there and go, and everybody else is singing, and you're like, I've heard this song a million times. Can't they come up with a new song? Can't we do Feliz Complianos or something different here? You know? I mean, uh, and by the way, he, that guy that's leading the sing, singing, he can't li- lead. Why don't they get a young guy to lead the music? Why can't we put a beat to this happy birthday, you know? Or why can't we come up with a new version of this song? And, and you know, I don't like singing anyway. And <laughs> You see where I'm going with this, right? Because if that's your grandson or your daughter, you're singing because you love them and this is their day. And you, you don't care if you've sung happy birthday a million times. It's about them. And if you know the person the song is about, and you love the person the song is about, it doesn't matter. In fact, I've often thought, you know, let's say you, uh, I, I, I like music. I like contemporary Christian music. I like all different types of music. You know me, except for country music. And, uh, but seriously, let's say that me and my family moved to Montana, and there was only like two churches in the, this small little town, and one church had amazing music, but the preaching was lame. And the other church had countrified, singing old-fashioned hymns, but the preaching was solid. Gary would be in that church. Yes. I would wear earplugs, but I would be in that church. Now, I, I would sing. I would just learn to like it because it, it's about what we're singing about, and it's most importantly, it's about who we're singing about that motivates us to sing. And so... When I, I, sometimes I, I, I feel bad for Nathan, if he's up here and he's singing and he looks out and he sees, you know, a lot of people singing, but then a lot of people are like, you know, I'm wondering, what's he got to do to motivate him? I mean, he's wearing the Dallas Cowboys jersey. What else has he got to do to get you to sing, you know? But it, what it's coming down to is, do you love Jesus? Do you really love him? And, and if, if you don't feel motivated to sing, go back to the cross and realize the one who died for you and gave his life and it was buried and rose again for you. And if you just will refresh that in your mind, that's what communion is about, and we're going to do it today. It's do this in remembrance of me, and that's what gives you the motivation to sing. Let's go to the third verb, know. Know who the Lord is. It's all about knowing him. There was this old song, to know me is to what? I'm that old? To know me is to love me. Okay, in fact, it said to know, know, know me is to love, love, love me. Anyway, that's the way it is with God. If you know him, you will love him, and you will sing about him. He says, know that the Lord... Whenever you see Lord in all caps, what is that? Yeah, that's Yahweh. That's the personal name of God, okay? So God is saying, hey, know who Yahweh is. And then he follows that with, with, seven, with uh, five titles here about who he is. And there you see them there in different colors. And we're going to go through each one. First of all, know that the Lord, he is God. He is Elohim. He is the mighty one. He is the powerful one. He is the one who is over all. And so therefore, when we know truly that he is God, we must worship him alone. There are no other gods. He is alone is God. That's why the Bible starts in Genesis, as we learned a month ago. In the beginning, God. He established his position first. He talks about in chapter 2, Yahweh, but he starts off with his position that he is God and he is God alone. And what we struggle with in our life when you're deviating off into different sins or you're struggling to read your Bible like you know you should or to pray like you should or share the gospel like you should, what's hindering you is another God, a little g. It could be the God of work. It could be the God of people-pleasing. 
It could be the God of pleasure. It could be the God of you fill in your own blank. When we are struggling in other areas of life, it's because we put another God on the throne. And what we need to do is establish, first of all, know the Lord that he is God, no one else, nothing else, including ourselves, and therefore we can worship him. The second thing is that he, know that the Lord is he who made us. Because he is our creator, we must fulfill his purpose in us. Those of you who make things with your hands, you make them for a purpose. Those of you who are computer programs, you create a program to fulfill a certain purpose. And therefore, God has created you. Your job in life is to discover that purpose. What is your purpose? Now, we can give the broad catechism, you know, to enjoy God and glorify Him forever, right? Uh, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I said it backwards. We, we can establish that, but God has a specific purpose for you. Fill in your name. And you need to discover what that is. But see, what we do is because we think that he is not God, we think my purpose is whatever I determine it to be. And that, if that doesn't describe Western civilization, I do not know what else does. Western civilization is, is, is all about is you find your own truth. You, find, you, you determine your own purpose in life. You follow your own path, follow your heart, all those uh, therapeutic deism type thoughts. But Christianity is no, no, you find God. And then you find your purpose. And then you follow that purpose. But you, you, there's something deep inside of us, inside of Gary, that rebels against that. It's like, no, this is my life. I want to do what I want to do. I, I want to follow my own path. And there's something that's just like Adam and Eve that doesn't trust God. That we believe the lie of Satan that, you know, well, God's just holding out on you. He knows that in the day you eat thereof, you'll become like him. And you'll call the shots. There's something inside us that wants to call the shots and doesn't trust God. But God gives his, his best to those who leave the choice up to him. You need to trust God because he is a good, good father. He, he gives good and perfect gifts to those who call upon him, those who ask and who believe in him. We need to trust God to be God. The, the next verb is, or the next thing about God is that we are his. And this word right here, if, if we walk down to the parking lot and say, hey, whose red Ford is that? And they say, well, that's mine. What are you saying? It's not your favorite car. You're not saying that it's, it's a car you like. You're saying it's a car you own. It's my car. And God says you are his. He owns you. And you say, well, how does God own me? Well, twofold. Number one, he created you. So he, by creation, he has ownership. But because you strayed away from him, he owns you secondly through the purchase of Christ's blood. He bought you with a price. You strayed. It's just like... Habakkuk and his wife Hagar that goes astray, right? And what he was, it was his wife, but then she goes astray, and she, then she gets herself so in debt and becomes like a, basically a prostitute, and he goes back to the auction and buys her back, and now he's, she is his wife again. Did I just use the wrong prophet? Not Habakkuk. Huh? Hosea, Hosea and Gomer. Right, okay, sorry. Got mixed up here. They haven't had enough coffee yet. All right, so, but... We, we are his, so therefore, we are his prized possession. It's not just like we're just property, but it's property that he owns and loves and paid a significant price for with the blood of Jesus Christ. So when you realize, hey, I belong to God, that's a good thing. You know, when if somebody says, well, Gary, are you married? You say, yeah, I belong to Tammy. That's a good thing. You know, these are my kids, Isaiah, Caitlin, Jessica, these are, I, they're mine. 
but not in a, a bad way like, oh, well, that, that, that chair is mine. We're not talking about inanimate objects. We're talking about objects that we love and have a loving relationship. And so that's where the next one comes in. There's a sequence. We are his people. God calls us family. We are his family. And so that's something also to be thankful for. But we know who he is. He is our heavenly father. The concept of father is very remote. It's there, but it's very remote in the Old Testament. But it's, it's loud and clear in the New Testament because of the cross of Christ, because God's son came and made us joint heirs with him through his death on the cross. We all can claim Jesus Christ as our brother and the God, the father as our heavenly father. And so we are his family. We are brought into that family through Christ. So then he, the last one says, we are the sheep of his pasture. So therefore, we follow the good shepherd. We're sheep. He's the shepherd. You know what's interesting is for centuries, Psalm 23 was known as the Psalm of the Good Shepherd. That's what rabbis called it, the Psalm of the Good Shepherd. And so Jesus blew the rabbi's mind when he comes into the world and says, I'm the Good Shepherd. You know Psalm 23 you all been memorizing? The Lord is my shepherd? That's me. And that was just amazing that Jesus would say that to them. But we need to realize we're sheep. And sheep is not the most complimentary adjective. I would like to be called a cheetah. Lean and fast. That would be cool, you know. Or I'd like to be called a gorilla, big and strong. But I'm called a sheep. <laughs> Toothless, fangless, clawless, dumb. <laughs> That's what we are. But it takes humility to identify as, as a sheep. And it takes humility to submit to the shepherd. But he is a good shepherd. He loves us. In fact, what does it say? That he lays down his life for the sheep. You see, in many uh, Middle Eastern cultures, you would herd, you lead sheep into a, a basically a penned out area, walled in, depending on how much money you had. And the door literally was not a, there was no wooden door there. There was just an opening that was pretty much wide enough for one sheep to go through. And when the shepherd would lead into the evening, the, the flock back to the, the, the sheep fold, there's the word I was looking for, he would stand at the, at the entrance of it, and he'd basically say, I am the door. If you want to get in here, you have to go through me. And he would take a knee, and he'd take his rod and his staff, and he would inspect every sheep, looking for parasites, looking for snake bites, anything, and then he'd just kind of love on them and then let them in. And one at a time, and he'd say, my sheep hear my voice, my sheep, I, I, I know them by name, they know me. And he would literally be the door, and they'd all come in. And then after they were all in, he would lay down, in front of the door, literally laying down his life because if a wolf or a coyote or a bear wanted to get into the sheep fold, they had to go through the shepherd. And Jesus actually did die in the process of laying down his life. And of course, Jesus said, no man takes my life freely, but I freely lay it, no man takes my life from me, but I freely lay it down. So Jesus laid down his life and was killed for the sheep to protect them and to love them and care for them. So then the next verb we're going to discover here is enter his gates. Enter is a command. You're on the outside. God is asking you to come on the inside. Now, this is a twofold invitation. This is for those who are lost to enter in to a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. But it's also an invitation to God's people, those who are already saved, to enter into worship. God calls us every Sunday and literally every day. We, we believe in worshiping God, not only on Sundays, but throughout the week. But there's nothing can replace the collective, communal, community worship that we we have every Sunday. 
And so God calls us to enter into his gates, into where he's at with the body of Christ. And we can make a choice. We can choose to go or not to go. But entering involves leaving where you're at to be somewhere else. And again, I'm talking metaphorically as well as physically. God is calling us to enter into worship. And he says to enter these gates with thanksgiving. He's like, as you come in to my presence, as you come into the body of Christ for worship, come in with a thankful heart. You know what that requires Gary to do? If on the way here, something's got me flustered, something's got me in a bad mood, I need to leave it on the parking lot. I need to enter, literally enter these gates with thanksgiving. God, leave all that behind. I am thankful I'm alive, that I can be here, that I can worship you, that I can be with my church family. And we start thinking that way. And guess what? It's contagious. My dad was the president of Optimus International for his local chapter. And uh, he gave me this little sign that I had my light switch. It said, attitudes are contagious. Are yours worth catching? And that, that stuck with me. And so when we enter God's gates with an attitude of thanksgiving, it's contagious. And Sunday morning is like the highlight of my week. I enjoy being here with my church family because there's that positive attitude here where we love God and we're thankful for what he's done. And so that thankfulness, that thanksgiving results in praise, which is through our prayers, through our singing, through all kinds of ways we can praise God and to give thanks and bless his name. So there's a difference we need to understand, though, from about between being thankful and thanksgiving. I can be thankful and be silent because in my heart, I'm thankful. But I cannot have thanksgiving and be silent. I have to take the thanks and give it. <laughs> I have to give it away. Now, I, I can show thanksgiving towards another person, but most importantly, this context is about giving thanks to God. And see, in, our, in America, Thanksgiving is still a holiday. Nine, uh, 1777 is when George Washington established it as a federal holiday. And people all over our country celebrate it. Other countries, some of them celebrate on different days. But a lot of times the celebration is just being thankful. <laughs> or giving thanks to someone, but not necessarily to God. I remember years ago there was a, 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 a Texas school bo- uh, textbook that came out. And it talked about what Thanksgiving is and the history of it. And it said, that's when the pilgrims gave thanks to the Indians. That textbook got snatched up and thrown in the trash real fast. They were trying to rewrite history. No, the pilgrims, whether you want to believe it or not, were giving thanks to God along with the Indians. And so Thanksgiving is not just giving, being thankful, but get, taking that thanks and giving it to God. I, I, I would encourage you, whether you're traveling to West Texas or Oklahoma, or Beaumont, or staying here in the Houston area, whoever you're sharing this meal with, be openly glad that you can give thanks to God. Not in a pompous, pious way, look at me, I'm going to pray everybody. Y'all bow your heads, take off your hats, I'm going to pray, and then pray in some King James English. Don't, don't do that, but don't be ashamed to give thanks to God, and not just talk about what you're thankful for, but who you're thankful to. Because that's what this holiday is about, and that's what our lives should be about. And let me encourage you, parents, teach your kids to be thankful. It's something that has to be taught. It's not automatic. I've seen them, you know, where, you know, someone gives a child something, and the mommy and daddy go, say, tell them thank you. And the kid goes, and gets all shy. No, they're just shy. 
No, they're being a brat. Say thank you. Say thank you. you give me that back. Here you go. When he's ready to say thank you, he can have it. I'm not kidding. We need to teach our kids to be thankful. It, um, it's interesting. I was, um, I was at the rec center with Isaiah and Caitlin recently doing what we do, playing basketball. And I was, I was working out on the other side, and I'd come back over and check on them while they're playing, whatever. And I came back over, and, like, some kids were shooting, and one of the balls took a funny bounce and rolled over my way. I wasn't on the court. I picked up the ball. This, this, this happened. We were there for about an hour. This happened four times. The ball rolled over to me. Some kid came over and went like this. I threw the ball to him. Didn't say a word. I didn't have to go pick up the ball and get it. I mean, the ball rolled by me. I'm like, I went and got it for them, picked it up. They held up their hands like, give me the ball. And I threw the ball to them. They walked away. The fourth kid said, thank you. One out of four. I think that's about right. <laughs> you know that First Timothy said that Paul told Timothy, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. And it gives a long, very dark list. And one of the things on the list is unthankful. Unthankful. And you have exchanges at the store where you say thanks or they, they don't say thank you for being a customer or whatever. And it's just like, I'm just doing my job, you know. And we don't want to be part of that, okay? We need to pray for them and against it, but we need to set the example by being thankful people and teaching our kids to be thankful. It's not just something that's expressed in words, though. It's also expressed in our actions. Um, I had a friend in college that had one of my favorite cars. Anybody know what this is? No? No, close, close. It's an Oldsmobile. Good job, Christian. Oldsmobile. What is it? What kind of Oldsmobile? Do you know? Cutlass Supreme, good, 1975, old. his car looked just like this. I had to search Google Images to find this exact car because I just wanted to do that. Anyway, uh, when I went to college, I didn't have a car, um, but I wanted to go on dates. So I would ask my friend, can I borrow your car? And he'd say, yeah. So what I would do is I would get the car a couple hours early. I would take it to the car wash. I would wash it inside and out. And at the end of the evening, after I dropped off the girl I was dating, I'd fill up his tank and leave it full, and I returned the car. I didn't just say, hey, thanks, Danny. Danny Hatfield, by the way, if you're watching. Danny, Danny Hatfield was the one who let me borrow his car, and he got to where he was excited about me borrowing his car because he always got a full tank of gas. And I'm talking about a college student who did not have a lot of money, okay? But I didn't just say thanks, Danny. I showed my thanks by taking care of what was his. See where I'm going with that? We give God, if you're thankful for your house, take care of it like it belongs to him because it does. If you're thankful for your children, take care of them like it, they belong to God because they do. You know, our church building that God has given us and we've, this wonderful group of people that we've merged with, be thankful for them. Just Don't just say thanks. Take care of one another. Be, show it in our actions by showing our thanksgiving. So it's not only with our actions, it's also with our words. And so here's the time where I want you to just speak up and say what you're thankful for, okay? So um, just keep it short. But if you want it, we're not going to pass a microphone. We're not going to worry about that. If you just, if somebody wants to just stand up and say, hey, I, I'm thankful for blah, 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 10, 10 to 30 seconds. It doesn't really have to be much of anything. Who would like to go first? Just stand up and just say, Lord, I'm thankful for X. Anybody want to go first? All right, right.
That's awesome. Very good. Mark. <laughs> Amen. And continue to pray for Mark's voice. It's getting a little bit better. We're praying for him. Miss Karen. Thankful that you're here safe and sound, Miss Karen. That's awesome. All right. Who, who else? A few more. Lauren. Amen. Amen. Very fine. All right. A couple more. Who else? Amanda. Amen. Thank you very much. Amanda, you get to go last. Miranda, not Amanda. Amanda Miranda. Sorry, got mixed up. Yes, Miranda. Amen. And we're thankful, Miranda, that God brought you here. Amen. All right. Thank you all for, for sharing and giving thanks to the Lord for that. All right. I'm going to get to the last point here in a little bit. So it does say enter his gates with thanksgiving, but it says enter his gates and courts. What is this describing? The gates and the courts. The temple, right. This is describing the temple. Of course, it, it would include the tabernacle as the temporary spot that they used until till they had a temple, but all of it, even the Garden of Eden is pointing towards the temple. The temple had different gates that people entered 
for different purposes, and it had different chambers. And, and so he talks about that, and he says in Psalm 20, 42, he talks about describing something in a broader detail about this temple and its gates and courts. He says, David writes here, these things I remember, how I would go with the throng, David literally leading thousands of people to worship, and lead them in procession. So the king was leading thousands of people in a procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. So can you imagine walking with thousands of people and you're all singing, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And you're singing these psalms as you're marching and you're shouting to God and you're carrying banners. I mean, this is an amazing thing that they did on a regular basis, but especially when there was festivals, and that's what he said there, with a multitude of people keeping festival. And he said, I remember those days. Those were the exciting days. And so let's talk about how this procession would break down. It's really fascinating. There was a court of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus overturned the temple, I mean the tables, because that's where the Gentiles were supposed to pray and, and come and seek God. And what were they doing? They're ripping the Gentiles and other people off with their merchandise and their markups and their money changing. And so the very place where people were to come to seek and find God, they were using it for profit and as a den of thieves. So when the people in this throng would march in, People who were Gentiles who wanted to be converted to Judaism would march in, but they would go to the court of the Gentiles. Then the women would peel off to the court of women. They would be in a separate spot. And then there was a court for men who were not in the priesthood, and so they would go to their section. And then all of the priests would go into the temple, but who would go into the Holy of Holies? The great high priest who was chosen for that year. And he'd be the one that would make the sacrifice for the people. So you see how each, there was layers here of people going into different spots. And because of all this, this is where we enter into the temple. And of course, what does the Bible say? That we are the temple now. And we're not talking about this brick and mortar. We're talking about the body of Christ. We are the temple. And when we gather together, we're entering into that temple for worship. But look how the gospel shows up in even this. So Jesus, according to Hebrews, also suffered. Where did he suffer? Outside the gate. He wasn't even where the Gentiles were allowed or the women were allowed and definitely not where the men or the high priest. And he was the high priest, but yet he suffered outside and he died and was beaten and crucified outside the gate so that you and I could enter into the gate. Do you see that? He was made unacceptable to God so that we could be enter in and be acceptable to God. He was rejected by his heavenly father so that we could enter in and be in the presence of a holy heavenly father. Jesus suffered outside the gates so that we could enter into his gates with thanksgiving. He did that in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Not the blood of a lamb, not the blood of bullocks or goats or any other thing. He was going to take his own body into that temple, but they rejected him. He suffered outside, but he went to his heavenly throne. And at the mercy seat there, he offered his blood as the atonement for our sins. So Psalm 100 verse 5, the last verse of this, it says, why should we give thanks, Lord? For, and the word for there means because the Lord is good. How do we know the Lord is good? The good shepherd died for his sheep. Someone came to him and said, you know, good master. And he said, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. So read between the lines there. I'm God. The Lord is good. God is good. And God showed his goodness on the cross. God, we give thanks, Lord, for his steadfast love. 
You think about how God loved you through thick and thin, but think about this also. Jesus Christ loved you through all that he endured. He stayed steadfast to his mission of the cross. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the same, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. His steadfast love kept him. The nails didn't keep him there. His love kept him there. And he endured the beating, the mockery, the nakedness, the crown, the nails, the pierced side. He endured all of that. And he endured what felt like an eternity on the cross so that he could give eternal life to those who believe him. And it, and it says, and his faithfulness to all generations. Jesus was faithful to do what he was sent to earth to do. He stuck to his mission. He knew what his purpose was. He set the example for us. And I want you, if nothing else sticks with you today, I want this thought to stick with you, please. We all have heard that verse, you know, uh, good and, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. And we all want to stand before God someday and be rewarded by hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's not a bad thing. Paul prayed that that would be what God would say to him. But let, let me ingrain this into our minds. The only reason God will be able to say to any of us, well done and good and faithful servant, is because he said it to Jesus first. Jesus was the good and faithful servant who served us and laid down his life for us. And because he did that for us, because we're in Christ, he can say to you when you stand before his throne, well done, good and faithful servant. You were just like my son, Jesus. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you, are, you have been saved through faith, and that's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Jesus Christ on the cross is the greatest gift anybody has ever, ever been given. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians an inexpressible gift. The words cannot even begin to describe the blessedness of the gift of Jesus Christ. Do you know him personally this morning? Have you been saved have you been born again, as Jesus calls it in John chapter 3? If not, if you're watching online or you're here in person, I'm not asking, have you made a religious decision? Have you signed a card? Have you prayed a prayer? I'm asking, have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ because he died for you and he purchased you and received total forgiveness for all that you've done, past, present, and future, because of what Christ did on the cross, that he died, was buried, and he lives forever, and you can live forever with him if you will give your life to him and accept his forgiveness. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm asking for all the believers to pray and ask the Holy Spirit of God to open hearts and minds this morning so that if there's one or two that don't know Christ as Savior this morning, that you would trust him today. Put your faith in what he did on the cross, your good and faithful servant who died for all that you've done wrong. Father, we are thankful for this inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ. To say we don't deserve it is probably the biggest understatement of the world. But Father, that's who you are. You loved us while we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. Christ took our place. If that's not reason to give thanks, Lord, I really don't know what is. So Father, as we're thankful this week for stuff, and we're thankful for lots of things that eternally may not even matter, help us to never forget what we should be most thankful for, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be thankful enough to do something about it, to share it, to have a gospel conversation this week in, in our homes, at the dinner table, while we're having dessert or watching football. I pray that we would be unashamed of the gospel of Christ. And we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, I'd love to know about this. This is my cell phone number. If you have follow-up questions, maybe you want to know more. Maybe you're not ready yet. Call me. Text me. Let's have a conversation. I'll take you to lunch. And maybe you know someone who would benefit from hearing these kind of messages. Invite them. Invite a neighbor. Invite a coworker to join you and pray for them that they would be here. All right. We're going to have question and answer time. Amanda, would you like to help me with that? So go ahead and text your questions in. And there's a number right there. If you're watching online, you want to send it in from there. Or you can raise your hand if you'd rather do it that way. Um, there was a, uh, a question left over from last week. Yeah, um, we'll do that one next. There was a question left over from last week about how do you choose Bible translations. And, of course, um, someone said it best. I can't remember who attributed this quote to. And they're like, which is your favorite Bible translation? And they said, well, it depends on which verse. Like I said today, like, for example, ESV overall is my most favorite. And again, there's lots of good Bible translations. It's not like there are bad Bible translations. That's a whole other thing. Jehovah's Witnesses have their own New World translation, which is totally corrupted because they're trying to teach their false doctrine. Um, there are some that are poor in others. It's just like if I was trying to uh, tell Amanda, would you tell somebody something in Spanish? Amanda, what, what, rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. A two and a half. Out of ten. Where a rally would probably be a nine and a half, right? And so 11, yeah. So some people can trans, exactly. Some people can translate Spanish better than others. Some people can translate the Bible better than others. But be clear on this, you have the word of God, okay? The, the word of God is preserved. So whether they choose to use this word or that word, which are synonymous to translate something, whether it be a shout or a joyful noise, we have the, we have the meaning, but some are better, better way of saying it other, better than others. Um, the, uh, I know a lot of you come from, as I did, a KJV-only background. And, uh, but the problem with that is if you read the preface to the King James Bible, they will tell you we're doing this because the time has come to modernize the language. And another time, that will be necessary again in the near future. They said that in 1600, that it would be necessary in the near future because language changes. So... ESV is very good. If you're looking for something that's more of a paraphrase, um, I wouldn't really recommend the message. I would recommend the New Living Translation. I think that's a better, if you're looking for something more of a paraphrase um, versus a translation. But anyway, that's a good one. Um, what, what question do you have? What do you think about head coverings for women? Your hat looks great. Next question. Okay, uh, um, okay. so I'm not the best person to answer this question uh, because some people have researched it much better than I have. But my understanding of head covering in the first century church is it was a cultural thing. That for a woman to have her hair down and not head covered was basically saying she's available for immoral purposes. Prostitutes didn't wear head coverings and let their hair down. Where other women kept their hair up and when they went in to pray they would cover their head. Okay, So head coverings were a reflection of how you pray. I don't think our culture that doesn't translate, they, and people have no idea what you mean by wearing a hat, not wearing a hat, your hair up, your hair down, so it doesn't translate. I think that's one of those times where it is a cultural thing that we can look at the principle of what were they trying to do, modesty and reverence for God. So we, in our culture, how do we show modesty and reverence for God? You know, we, we clean up when we go to church, we act respectful, we do all those things, we don't dress immodestly, we show respect for the house of God. It doesn't have to be by a head covering or not a head covering. I know in some denominations it's an issue, but I think it's pretty obvious by 
the lack of discussion about that it's not a big issue. But any other questions? How could I pray better? How can I pray better? Um, there's a, uh, yeah, close your eyes does help. Because um, the reason I recommend people close your eyes because it just gets out distractions. But then again, I can close my eyes and I can see a million different thoughts going on because I don't think I'm ADHD or anything like that, but I do just get distracted. Um, but what keeps me on task is praying the scriptures. In fact, there is a, um, a podcast by David Platt called Pray the Word, and he goes through a different verse in every chapter of the Bible and prays that. So at night, when I, maybe I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm having trouble going back to sleep, I will say, Lord, you are my shepherd, so help me not to want anything but you. And, you know, I, I'm glad that you make me lie down in green pastures. You feed me with your word, that you lead me beside still waters. You know, you refresh my soul. I pray that you'll lead me in paths of righteousness today. And even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I wouldn't fear anything, Lord Jesus, because you're with me. So what I'm doing right now, I'm praying through Psalm 23. And, of course, there's the model prayer. Jesus, the disciples said, hey, Lord, teach us to pray, because they were so profoundly impressed with his prayer life. They're like, they didn't even say, teach us to cast out demons. They said, teach us to pray. And so Jesus would go off and all, many times away to pray, and they wanted to have that lifestyle of prayer. And so he said, okay, our Father... So where's our prayer directed? Towards the Father. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying praying to Jesus, but our primary audience of prayer is the Heavenly Father. It's often been said, pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how the Trinity is reflected in prayer. But you can go through that, and of course, it starts off with adoration. Our Father is in heaven. Hallowed, amazing is your name. Your kingdom comes. not my kingdom. It's your kingdom, not my will. Your will be done. And so you pray through that, that the, the model prayer, or commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Scripture helps me pray better. Other than that, I'm pretty feeble without it. Any other questions? Anybody have a question in person? Want to raise your hand? All right. So, yeah, at the end, that's a good question because many translations leave that out because I believe it was a scribal notation because back then when people prayed, they often ended every prayer with, to yours be the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. No matter what they prayed, they ended that. So the scribe, like, well, they probably said that, so here we go. And they wrote it. It must, may have been in the column. And eventually, after copies after copies, it eventually made it its way into the text. It's not inaccurate. It's fully accurate. In fact, it comes from Second Chronicles. So it, it's not a problem for it to be in there. If you have a translation, it includes it. But it wasn't what Matthew originally wrote or Luke, either one of those in, in, in that. So it's not a problem for it not to be that. The problem is people will say, well, we're missing parts of the Bible. No, you're not missing any of the Bible. The problem is we have a few little extras here and there, and very few. Okay, in the big scheme of things. And none of those extras are inaccurate or, or, or a problem. It's just mostly scribal notations. Great, great question. Any other questions? One, Charles, not that I know of. If someone else has read some history that I haven't read. Um, the, the Chosen, and I was actually talking to my daughter Jessica about this morning. It's called The Chosen because it's not about Jesus. It's about the disciples. So if you watch The Chosen, think, wait, where's Jesus? I want to see more Jesus. It's not really about him. It's about them. But, I mean, they play him up really good, though. I mean, um, but no, and then also my son-in-law was asking, you know, most people, including me, believe that James was the half-brother of Jesus, but a lot of people don't, and there's no right or wrong, because we don't know. There's some archaeology that actually Teller was telling me about also, and other archaeological things that say that he probably was, but the Chosen is portraying him as he's not, okay? And so, but if you've noticed, there's four episodes now where in conversations with James or about James, the book of James is quoted. Like last night, it was talking about count it all joy when you suffer, you know. And so, of course, James writes that. 
And then one time, James and James the less or James the little, and, and Andrew were having a discussion. He's like, hey, so can I ask you, why hasn't he healed you? And he says, I guess it's because I haven't asked. And then, of course, back to James chapter 2, you have not because you ask not. So there's several, they slip in several quotations from the book of James, and they do that in lots of other ones. There's, if you can see in the chosen, they're setting you up for what all these guys have wrote. There's things that Peter's saying that's going to be in Second Peter and First Peter. There's things that Matthew's saying that's going to be in his gospel. It's really clever. It's really clever how they're doing it. Taylor, you got a question? Yeah, so the Bible begins in a paradise, it ends in a paradise. It begins with river and flowing through it, ends with a river flowing through it. And um, it, in, and begin, and towards the beginning, a worldwide disaster, end, you know, flood, now fire, worldwide disaster. And it works its way to the middle, and of course the middle is the cross. And it's beautiful. I, I have a chart I can, I can give you. There's The one back there on the table is not the whole Bible, is it? It's, I think it's just the, it's one of the Gospels, but... Yeah, this afternoon, let me show you. There's a copy. It's, and there's several different versions of it, but they're all relatively the same, but how that chiastic structure, and it's, it's really cool. Um, there's one about Noah's Ark that I'm going to show with you next week, that it, how it begins and works its way to the middle. But yeah, it, it's a great way to study Scripture, and I think it's like one of the keys, not the only key, to help understanding what's the main point of this psalm, what's the main point of this passage, or whatever it may be. All right, good questions. Anybody else? All right, let's stand, and we're going to ask God to bless the food now so that when you move over there, you can beat others to the line. Just don't push anybody out the door, you know, be civil, whatever. So, uh, Pastor Stan, we are thankful for you and Miss Reva, like really thankful for you. Like, let's give them a hand. We, we love them. And uh, I'm going to ask you to give thanks to the Lord for, for the food for us. <laughs> 